Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. listening to the silver stream a journey through ideas in collaboration with invited guests using visual artworks writing and music as navigation points within a stream of consciousness i'm bizantia harlow a visual artist and the creator and host of the silver stream for today's episode i'm joined by isabel wall isabel is a writer and visual artist from brooklyn new york for seven years she lived in london where she studied at the royal college of art She's the author of a short story collection, Winter Strangers, published by Mad Bibliotheque in 2019. Her debut novel, Cold New Climate, was published by Weatherglass Books in April 2021. Um, thanks for joining me today, Isabel, um, all the way from America. Um, we know each other from the Royal College of Art. We graduate. Oh no, you were the year above me. You graduated in 2014. We were both doing painting, <laughs> although I don't do any painting now. <laughs> and you have recently like been writing more. So that's quite interesting. Um, how did this happen? How did you progress to like writing a novel? It's always sort of a, like something I guess I'm working through or negotiating in some way. I mean, I um, I actually wrote a lot when I was like a child and a teenager. It was like my thing and I was not making visual art at that, at that time. And then I sort of had like a switch where I became very interested in visual art and I kind of stopped writing and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go for you know, studying visual art and that's, that's, that's really my thing. And the writing was, was somehow not like the real thing. It's not really what I do or something. And, um, then when I was doing my master's degree, it's sort of just, um, which as you said, was in painting, the writing sort of just, um, crept back into my life. And I was, um, like I showed some things to, some friends and um, was very kindly invited to join like a small writing group in London where um, like a, a bunch of sort of artist writers sort of we would meet every so often and sort of chat about um, about what we were working on and show things through to each other and one another and so it all developed like quite organically and I felt like I had a real um, support network in that way and um 
then basically through people I met doing that, um, there were some people involved in like very small presses and art publishing and um, Sharon Kivlin's project, Ma Bibliothèque, and um, they published my story collection. And then um, I sent the book to uh, Neil Griffiths, who's a um, writer and now publisher, and his his um, business partner, Damien Lanigan, and he invited me to, to write a novel, which wound up being Cold New Climate. Um, but I think, yeah, I'm not really making visual art right now. Um, it's been interesting having, as I said, this like sort of, I guess, phasic kind of thing where I screw up thinking of myself as a writer and not a visual artist. And then I started making visual art and I was like, well, am I a visual artist or am I really a writer? And now um, when I started writing again, I was sort of thinking, well, am I really a writer? Because I've spent all this time thinking of myself as a visual artist. And now I'm sort of like confronting that again in a way. I think um, a lot of the things that the visual art did have moved into the writing and are happening in the writing um and i think a lot of the the tension that occurs and the observations that occur in in the writing and basically like the way that the prose is constructed constructed um really happens via a lot of sort of um juxtapositions and sort of implications and i think um that very much feels like it comes out of like almost a, like a very sort of pictorial or compositional like relationship to to prose that I think for me comes out of of being a visual artist I don't I mean obviously other writers also write with sort of implication and without you know um you know with these other things sort of writing alongside the literal meaning of the text but I think, you know, when I was painting more, I was very interested in, you know, how you sort of, like, like how a mark was interpreted and whether it was interpreted as something more like a sign or whether it was interpreted more as just an abstract gesture. And um, when when sort of visual information began to coalesce into what looked like a representation of something and when it was more just like a a sort of expression and i think that that is in a way like a poetry question like like when are you being i guess what you might call literal and when are you being what you might call expressive like when do your words have the function of like designating something or referring to something and when are you actually more interested in creating this sort of energy or sort of yeah like a a sensibility or a feeling and so I think um sort of related to to what I was trying to say earlier that a lot of the the formal choices that I made when I was writing this book about like how to um express what is happening with the characters I think a lot of that came out of that sort of concern in in my visual practice with when something 
reads as a sign and when it doesn't. I loved reading the book. I wanted to read it before we, you know, did the episode, like read the whole of it. And it was very, it was so enjoyable. It was one of my most enjoyable radio research (laughs) things. And I read it very fast because I started reading it and then like I had to stop for a while and then I just read the whole thing in a couple of nights. Like I devoured it. There are lots of strange twists and like you're on different characters' sides at different times. And I don't know, it's really um, like thought provoking as well in terms of its themes um, and wider themes as well. It's gripping, it's... uh, it's disturbing it's really like if you've ever been heartbroken (laughs) it's like you go through the stages of that with the different characters as well not just from one person's perspective and it talks about heartbreak and all different sort of romantic heartbreak um a feeling of like family love and disappointment I don't know it just it plays on so many different um human emotions but what I love about it most is like your eye to detail of how you observe like these small moments it's really it's wonderful rather than us talking the book to death in a way because I feel like it's important that people read the book and we don't give too much away um it might be nice if we just go through listening to some extracts of Isabel reading um, certain bits of the book. And we're going to hear the first now, which is the opening to the novel. The hillside is dry. Across the road, the variegated tans of shrubs and grasses and bare dirt, dark and milky and sun-faded, purple-tinged and yellowing, seem to glide the land into the distance. If she turns around and looks out of the back of the house, she can see other homes and greener, rising hill ranges, and then where the ridge meets the sky, the white, linear intervention of a wind farm. Blades turn where the wind allows something to be generated. On her second day in the village, Lydia hears from the young woman who works at the bakery that there was a long debate about the wind farm that the older people did not want it because they thought it would deface the hillside and that the tourists would not like it, that the tourists would not come. And sometimes tourists do ask why they didn't put the farm somewhere else, somewhere where it wouldn't ruin the view. Lydia says she does not think that it ruins the view at all, that in the morning she likes to watch the white propellers turn. If you are putting turbines on a hillside, you are trying to secure a future. And the wind farm, Lydia tells the young woman, makes her feel as if everything will, perhaps, be all right, because we will, perhaps, do something in time. The woman says, yes, this is what the young people think, that they should try to preserve their part of the earth, because everything is changing. And so the young people, by and large, supported the local government when they put in the wind farm. Besides, the woman says, there is always a view, everywhere, So if you don't want to ruin a view, you can't have any turbines. Her dark eyes are serious and hopeful. Lydia feels herself smile and is surprised, is pleased, keeps speaking, although her order has been filled and she is already paid. Did you hear about the wildfires in California? You can see pictures online. It's terrifying. Google California wildfires. But now the woman is looking out the window at the front of the bakery, past Lydia, who feels sweat on her chest. 
The woman wipes the counter and looks up. Yes, she says. Her smile is pronounced and careful. Thank you, says Lydia, and with her white bag of pastry, she walks back to the house. So we've just met Lydia, um, who is 37 years old, and she has gone to Greece um, to take a break from her relationship with her partner, Tom, who is much older than she is. Um, and they've been in a relationship for quite some time. And she is, is really quite bored uh, with this relationship and really questioning it and um, just uh, sort of dissatisfied um, and really almost disgusted with him at this point. So she's gone off to Greece with the idea that she will uh, get some time to think about their relationship, but also uh, have maybe a dalliance or two. Um, so she's kind of on the lookout to meet somebody. Um, and let's hear a clip in which we find out uh, how that goes for her. On the 20th evening of her stay in Greece, Lydia arrives at the bar later than has been her custom. Again she orders a beer, again she sits outdoors at the high table. The usual girls enter, with their soft, curved shoulders and painted lips, with charming and effective distance in their eyes and in the casual tilt of their chins. Young men follow them, as on the nights before they walk past Lydia. Tonight there is a man who looks at her. She looks back. He is not young, but younger than Tom is now, and as they continue to speak, she notices an Australian accent's strange heights and attenuations. At the house, she offers him something to eat, and without waiting for a response, opens the refrigerator door. An arm reaches around her waist, and she stumbles and grabs a chilled plexiglass shelf. She stands up and turns around. She takes off his shirt. Not far from his hip, there is an inch-long horizontal scar. What's that from, she says. You should close the fridge. Oh, says Lydia, and closes the fridge, just as the man is saying appendicitis. Now the house is very dark, and Lydia feels with utmost sensitivity how cool the terracotta floor is on the soles of her feet and how warm by comparison the worn wooden floor of the bedroom, and then cool again the sheets on her shins, thighs, back, face. Vomit on me, says the man. What? The man says again what he wants her to do. Put your fingers down your throat, says the Australian man, and vomit on me. I don't want to do that. Please. Please at least put your fingers down your throat. Please at least gag for me. The next morning, Lydia does not watch the sunrise, but instead feels its diffuse light coming through the curtains, passing over the form of the man sleeping behind her to touch the back of her left ear. Across the room, she can see the low wooden table and on it the red lamp tan cord curled around its base and its plug lying to the side, unused. 
On the wall above hangs a painting of globular and emotional peaches, encircled by a blue mark meant to indicate, expressively, a bowl of the kind one might find on a kitchen table in a house like this. In a countryside like this, you might expect to find a rough-hewn kitchen table and on it a bowl of ripe fruit on which bumblebees and wasps might land. There are no wasps in the painting. Lydia wondered if the artist feared that if he or she painted a wasp or a bee or a fly, it would come out a black spot. And a black spot could look like mold or some other damage, a hole made by a worm. Outside, a bird caws. The man's arm is heavy on her side. Lydia can see the sun in the lashes at the outer corner of her left eye. Then again, Lydia has not taken the trouble to look closely at the painting when walking from the doorway to the bed or when leaving the bedroom in the mornings. There might be, invisible from this distance, a wasp with thin flat wings, neat head and thorax, long curving abdomen and brutal point. Awake, the man embraces Lydia. Afterward, she lies on her right side with his forearm under her neck, his belly against her back, and soon with his free arm he reaches for his phone and retrieves it from the windowsill. He mentions work. Things at work are very urgent now. Then he reaches his arm back around Lydia and holds the phone in both hands near her face. Lydia is not sure if she should look down into the sheets or up at the ceiling or unabashedly at his phone as he inputs his passcode and opens his Gmail. She closes her eyes. Do you have service? She asks. I don't have service. Did you get a Greek sim? Yes. Then I don't know what carrier. The man has marks on his back, long pink ones. In the light spilling in from the still-curtained window, Lydia notices them as he puts on his shirt. Oh, she says, I'm so sorry, and he says, about what? And she tells him she has noticed pink marks, shallow, tender excavations. Don't worry about it. He pauses, then says, oh, I know what you're talking about. That's not you. They're old. When I was a child, I was attacked by an eagle at the Adelaide Zoo. Did I ever tell you about it? It came out of nowhere. We only met yesterday, says Lydia. They have not talked about his childhood or the zoo. Right, of course, says the man. He tells her a story. He was a child in Australia in the late 70s. His mother and his father worked long hours and did not have much time off. When they did, they took the family to the zoo. On one of these occasions, he and his brother were walking across the central lawn on their way to see Greater the Flamingo, having spent the morning with the gibbons and the stick insects, when he felt the cuts by which his shoulder and upper back opened into the lines she now sees. He, did, he could not see the eagle, but he could see his brother who saw the eagle. The boy who was being attacked by an eagle felt points of claws first over his scapulae, and then crossing the back of his neck, and finally in the delicate hollow above the clavicle. His brother did not know what to do. They are called fossa, the doctor told him later, those vulnerable soft bits, because the boy asked. As he was getting stitches, he thought, fossa. 
When he emerged from the doctor's office, his red-eyed mother was sitting on the low beige sofa clutching his brother, her face in his neck and one hand grasping at his blue striped shirt. Then she took them both for lemon ices, and on the way home in the car she cried again and said they should not have gone to the zoo. But it wasn't even a zoo eagle, the man says. It was just there. Then how did it get in? asks Lydia. Open air zoo, says the man. I mean, to me, the open air zoo is like terrifying, but also kind of funny. Um, because it is like, I mean, on the one hand, it is about the natural world and the, um, human attempt to dominate it and our real inability to, to do so. And like the, like the sort of like ridiculous attempt to even do so, um, and like to say the least dubious morality <laughs> of trying to do that. Um, but I think it's also about like, to some extent, the futility of, of efforts to control your, your life, right? You go to this place, which has, you know, all of, um, which is like a very sort of supposed to be manicured, controlled kind of place. Um, you're not going to get hurt by an eagle because whatever eagles are in the zoo are like um, kept well away from you, et cetera, et cetera. Like if you're a kid and your parents take you to the zoo, they're, they don't think that the animals at the zoo are going to hurt you because, you know, there's like cages and there's barriers. And, you know, um, I remember very clearly being a kid and being like afraid of the sharks in the aquarium. But then, you know, obviously there was like really thick plate glass. Um, so the idea that you go into this sort of situation that is supposed to be really aggressively made secure, and then like another eagle shows up from somewhere else, you know, so I think there's a lot in there about, um, just, just about sort of, I guess, the, the way that we try to organize our lives and, um, you know, what I think it's very relevant to what happens next in the novel, which is that Lydia sort of decides that she is going to um, come home and tell Tom she wants to stay with him. Um, and then when she returns home, um, she finds out that he's fallen in love with somebody else. So yeah, there was a, like, for me, there was a correspondence there that she thinks, okay, well, I'm the one that decides if I stay or if I leave, I'm going to go away. I'm going to organize it this way. This is how it's going to be. Then I decide I want to stay. So I come back. That's how it's going to be. And then like, there's like other people with other priorities doing totally other things. So the next, the next part that, um, we're going to play is my reading, um, basically the, the end of their breakup. So Tom has, told Lydia that he is in love with somebody else and uh, she's become quite distressed. When Lydia could not hear more, she went into the living room and sat on the sofa. Tom followed her. You were the one who wanted this, Tom said. You wanted to see other people. It was your idea. You said you were bored. Don't you remember? Yes, said Lydia. I was bored. Obviously you were too. You just didn't say it. Fine, yes, so I was too. I was too. Thank you for being the one to say it. 
He winced and touched his forehead, covering his eyes with one hand. Wait, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that the way it sounded. He sat down next to Lydia and put the hand on her knee. Honestly, thank you. Lydia looked down. The hand's back was wrinkled, and hairs interrupted the pattern of Tom's freckles. In recent years, the skin there had begun to settle over dark veins fat as worms. Blood was coursing back from the pads where Tom's hands, touching things, made fingerprints. It moved through capillaries in the thin casing of sagging flesh that mobilized the dashes of bone in his fingers, then along the blue protrusions she could see now, up the arm and past the angle of the elbow, back toward the lungs, the heart. Lydia placed a thumb over one thick vein and pushed down to pinch it shut. She looked at Tom's face and waited to feel pressure. His eyes were large and bewildered. Again she sees them now with her own eyes closed. His eyelashes are gray. What did she expect to happen? She pushed his hand away and walked to the bathroom where she repacked in the small gray case eye drops, toothpaste, tweezers, toothbrush, floss, small round cotton pads, makeup remover, mascara, various balms, colors for eyes, cheeks, lips. So you're about to hear something I think is very exciting and very sad. Um, it is what I believe to be a reconstruction of the sound of um, a flock of passenger pigeons flying overhead. And um, it is from a group called the Lost Bird Project. And they also have a video of the same flock uh, flying overhead. Basically, the audio is, is from their video. And the reason why I think it has to be a reconstruction, unfortunately, is because the last passenger pigeon, Martha, died in 1914 at the Cincinnati Zoo. And um, since then, the passenger pigeon has obviously been extinct. Um, at one point, they were the... Uh, most numerous bird in North America and potentially in the world. And at the height of their population, it was estimated that there were three to five billion of these birds, which is why the sounds that you're going to hear is just this sort of rushing uh, multitude of wings. And um, specimens of this bird have been found, like fossils of this bird have been found in North America, in the Libria tar pits, for example, um, dating back to the Pleistocene age. So they were, um, they were around on this continent for, for quite a long time. Um, and their extinction was completely anthropogenic. Um, it was caused by hunting on a very large scale and uh, deforestation. 